Amen. Well, good morning. We are, uh, we are blessed by that worship team, huh? Man, that was awesome. That was awesome. Uh, you, you may or may not be familiar with the story of the Scottish missionary named Jim Elliott. Jim and his wife Elizabeth met while they were in school at Wheaton College. Elizabeth was there uh, studying classical Greek in hopes that it would help her uh, someday in translating the Bible into languages that didn't currently have access to Scripture. At the same time, Jim was at Wheaton with a similar passion and goal. In fact, he would later spend some time at a Wycliffe Bible translating camp, gaining the necessary skills in order to be able to translate the Bible into the language of the Quechea people, who are a people of Ecuador. Many of Jim's family and friends actually thought that Jim should pursue a career in acting uh, or possibly youth ministry. But Jim felt very certain in his heart and in his mind that he had a calling to take the gospel to people who hadn't heard it before, specifically to some of these people groups in Ecuador. And so after spending time in Ecuador on separate missionary endeavors, Jim and Elizabeth were married in 1953. They spent about two more years uh, working together with that Quechea group of people, when Jim and Elizabeth began to be uh, to feel called to reach a specific tribe of people in the jungles of the country, the tribe was called the Huarani people. They were also referred to as the Alka, which is the Quechea word for savage. The tribe was known for being particularly violent and hostile toward outsiders. And after some time in preparation, Jim and four other men began making plans to go and visit this particular tribe. After some time, uh, they began to have a few peaceable visits with a man that they later dubbed George. George was not the man's real name. I didn't know how to pronounce it, so I went with George. (laughs) They even gave him uh, a couple of rides in their airplane. But unbeknownst to them, George had been communicating with his tribe and falsifying the reason uh, for these white peoples wanting to visit them. And so on a subsequent visit, they were met by ten Huarani warriors, and they were speared to death. All five of the men died. Shortly after Jim's death, Elizabeth, still feeling the Lord's calling to this particular group of people, began making her own attempts to visit and minister to this particular tribe. And she actually ended up spending over two years doing ministry among this specific group of people. I tell you that story, and I want to ask you to kind of hold it in your mind this morning. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of Nehemiah. And unfortunately, I think, Nehemiah oftentimes gets reduced to just being a book with some good leadership principles. Or the person Nehemiah gets reduced to merely being an effective leader. He was certainly an effective leader. The book of Nehemiah most definitely has some good leadership tips within it. But I think it's much more than that. So if you have a Bible and you want to flip to the book of Nehemiah, it's right after the book of Ezra. Nehemiah, along with Ezra, is within the return period of the Old Testament. I wasn't clear on something last week, so I actually want to go back and revisit it really quickly. And that's that during this era of time, after the exile, when the Israelite people go back to Jerusalem, it isn't all of the Israelites that do that. In fact, it's a very small number of individuals, what the Bible refers to as a remnant of Israel. From this point forward in Scripture, if you were to read Uh, a lot of the prophets, if you were to uh, even just kind of pay attention in the New Testament, the specific tribes of Israel aren't really mentioned any longer. 
They're just referred to as the Israelite people. That's because this remnant that returns uh, is from all over. It's not necessarily people from Judah or people from Israel. It's God's, a number of God's chosen people who have the opportunity to go back to the promised land. And as they do that, they're led in three separate waves by three separate individuals. A man named Zerubbabel who helps rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. A man named Ezra who comes back to reinstitute the law and proper worship at the temple. And then a man named Nehemiah who comes back with a small group of Israelite individuals and then works with those who are already there in order to rebuild the walls around the city. And what we're going to see today is that Nehemiah shows us what it looks like for the people of God to be committed to the calling of God despite obstacles to the work of God. That's the big picture of what we're going to see in the book of Nehemiah and how it fits into the entirety of the story of Scripture, Old Testament to New Testament. Nehemiah goes back with one very specific goal. So I'm going to read to you from Nehemiah chapter 1, the first four verses. It says this, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. There's kind of the, the who, what, when, where, why, the, the thesis of the book of Nehemiah, if you will. That Nehemiah hears that the wall is torn down, that the people in Jerusalem are in great danger, and he sits down and he weeps and he mourns and he prays and he fasts for days. And he feels compelled to go back to Jerusalem and help rebuild those walls. But it's more than just a compelling. He feels a calling toward it. It's something that he can't shake. Calling doesn't necessarily mean that the Lord comes to you and speaks something audibly and directly to you. In fact, you're never going to see that happen in the book of Nehemiah. And yet he is certain about what his calling is. More often, I think, a calling is a prompting in your soul. Frequently, it comes from seeing something that breaks the Lord's heart and knowing that there's a kingdom-focused solution. Uh, it was before my time, uh, maybe a couple generations before me, uh, but maybe you've seen episodes of the cartoon Popeye. And Popeye has uh, a woman that he loves named Olive Oil who would regularly stop traffic <laughs> with, with her beauty. <laughs> if things... If things ever looked bad for olive oil, which was more or less what happened in every single episode, Popeye initially would kind of laugh it off and he wouldn't make a big deal out of it. But then as things would get a little bit worse, Popeye would start to get pretty worked up. And right before he would pop open a can of spinach and his biceps would get huge and he would go and save the day, he had a line that he would frequently say. He would get really worked up and he would say, I've had all I can stand. And I can't stand it no more. I think that's closer to how a calling works in the heart of a believer. That there's something that exists in our world that's contrary to God's heart for his people. And a believer looks at that and there's something inside of them that says, I cannot stand that thing any longer. 
And I want to use the way God has gifted me, the way he has talented me. I want to use my time and my possessions and my energy in order to bring a kingdom reality into the brokenness of that situation. Nehemiah sees the walls broken down in Jerusalem, understands that God's people are there, surrounded by what we would call maybe enemies, people that would be contrary to God's chosen people. And he says, I cannot look at that any longer. I can't know that that exists and do nothing about it any longer. There's something that stirs inside him. And for Nehemiah, it comes in the form of this conversation uh, with his brother. Let me read verses 3 and 4 again. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And look at what it does to Nehemiah. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. God doesn't ever speak to him directly. God doesn't show up in a cloud or in a dream or you know, in a whirlwind or in fire, although those things happen in other places in Scripture. In this moment, Nehemiah's heart breaks over something contrary to what the Lord would desire for his people, and he feels compelled to act. I think that's the way that calling typically works in the life of a believer. You may not have anything in your life or no experience in your life where you feel like the Lord communicated something directly, almost audibly to your heart. That can happen. But at the same time, there might be something in our broken world that you look at and you say, I cannot stand that thing. And then the Lord begins to compel you toward doing something about it, toward using your gifts, using your abilities in order to bring some sort of kingdom-minded resolution to that. And so Nehemiah goes on that, and he begins to address this issue in Jerusalem. And so what I want to do, we're not going to necessarily step through and read all of these things. We're going to build a chart up here. Uh, these, are, these are aspects of the book of Nehemiah that you can look for as you read this week. But he faces a number of obstacles. Some of them come from outside of God's people, outside of the Jewish community. Others come from right within God's people. Here are what some of them are. There's a leader, King Artaxerxes. And in order to even be able to go to Jerusalem, Nehemiah is going to have to get this king's permission. And so Ezra chapter 2 verses 1 through 8 records this conversation that Ezra has with the king. There are these governors in a place that Nehemiah just refers to as beyond the river. And they form this uh, potential opposition. They are literal opponents who pop up over and over again, who, directly are, who attempt to directly stop Nehemiah's work in Jerusalem. He faces open ridicule in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I am going to read that. It says this, Now Sanballat, he was one of those leaders, heard that we were building the wall. And he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones uh, out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite beside him, or was beside him and said, yes, 
what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Open ridicule to the work that Nehemiah feels called to. They face physical resistance in the second half of uh, chapter 4. Because of this threat of open resistance, at one point the people are literally working with one hand and holding a weapon in the other in order to defend themselves. They're working all day and staying awake to keep guard all night. And at one point, Nehemiah records, this is uh, toward the end of chapter 4, So neither I nor my servants nor the men of my guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand, round the clock, in order to overcome physical resistance. And then in chapter 6, there's an actual conspiracy that pops up in order to try and halt Nehemiah from what he's doing. All of those come from outside the Jewish community. Most of them spearheaded by these two men, Sambalat and Tobiah. And then there are these internal issues that pop up from right inside God's chosen people in Jerusalem. Here are what some of those are. There's this unwillingness to serve or engage in the project. And I want to pause here for just a second. If you'll flip to chapter 3, what chapter 3 records is a long list of what family of Israelites was rebuilding what section of the wall. It feels kind of repetitive. Uh, if you're reading along this week, there are a lot of challenging names in there. You should maybe use a Bible app and just let it read to you and listen to it. But verse 5 records a really brief little tidbit of information that's incredibly telling. I'm going to read it. Chapter 3, verse 5, it says this, And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. This is the only time in all of Scripture that the Tekoite people are mentioned. They get one shot in Scripture as a family within God's chosen people. And what does the text record of these individuals? Well, it texts, or the text records that their nobles were too good to serve. I pray that America doesn't get remembered this way. That in the face of all of the things in the world that break the Lord's heart, that history does not look back on affluent, suburban, Western American Christian culture, and we get a footnote that says, the American wealthy people would not stoop to serve their Lord. There are any number of issues in our world where there's a broken system or a broken thing. There's something that literally, I think, would make the Lord weep. And oftentimes, we won't even lift a finger in order to see it remedied, in order to bring a kingdom reality to that thing. I pray that America, particularly, let's call it early 2000s America, doesn't get remembered the same way that this family of people does. We have not just the financial means, but the God-given gifts and talents to begin working against any number of issues in our world today in order to bring God-honoring kingdom realities into our world. And you might sit here this morning and have something that stirs within you frequently, that you see on the news, that you read about in the newspaper, 
and you think to yourself, that hurts me to read. Know that over the course of the last week, even though I don't necessarily know what those issues are for you, or I don't know what it is that you see and you wrestle with, I've been praying that there would be people in our congregation who would arrive at a point where they say, I've had all I can stand, and I can't stand it no more. And you'll crack open whatever your version of spinach is, and your biceps will bulge, and you'll go to work against that thing. Whether it's inside and through this church, or if it's partnering with an organization that already addresses that sort of thing, if it means giving of your money or giving of your time or giving of your abilities or whatever the case might be so that years from now, the American church isn't remembered as too good to stoop to serve their Lord. That's all that family gets. Their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. That's another sermon for another day. Moving on. In chapter 4, verse 10, we see that the Israelite people begin to experience fatigue. They just start to burn out, and they, they kind of want to quit. Also in that verse, there's a, a, a picture of this despair and kind of a lack of belief at times in what Nehemiah is trying to do and that the Lord could move them through this. And then in chapter 5, there's a long recording of, of literal sin taking place within the people of God that begins to slow down Nehemiah's work, and he's got to work to address that rather than being able to continue to work on the wall. I list all of those to say this. There are plenty of reasons for Nehemiah to give up. Plenty of reasons for him to throw in the towel and say, you know what, maybe God didn't actually call me to this. In fact, I'm willing to assert that most people in Nehemiah's position probably would have stopped. I say that because Western society, not just the church, but I think suburban American society and uh, most societies and developed nations around the world are so committed to the idea of comfort that we would assume that God must have the same commitment as us. We're so committed to our own comfort and ease that God must also be committed to our comfort and ease. And so if God were to want me to do something, he would blow open all the doors, he would file down all the speed bumps, he would eliminate every obstacle so that I could roll through it very easily and likely very quickly. And I think this is especially true as you work kind of downward through generational lines in America. The younger the individual in America, the easier we assume that something is supposed to be, and therefore, if God were to call me to do something, he would make it very easy for me to accomplish it. The reality is that that simply is not true. At the peak of all of this, when all of these struggles come together, all of these reasons to potentially quit come together, Nehemiah utters what's probably his most famous phrase. In the face of all the obstacles and all the challenges and all the setbacks, Nehemiah looks at one of his main sources of difficulty. And in chapter 6, verse 3, Nehemiah says the thing that we're probably most familiar with in the entire book. He says, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Nehemiah understands a truth that's important for all of God's people who aspire to do God's work, need to internalize. The reality is that the ease or difficulty of a task is never to be confused with the certainty of God's calling to a task. 
if ease were the signpost toward whether or not God had called someone to something, then most of the remarkable things throughout the church's history would not have happened. Because the opposite is likely, most likely, most normatively the case. That when the Lord calls you to something, it's going to be difficult. That's what scripture plays out for us. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament prophet, New Testament disciple, Paul, whoever. When the Lord calls them, compels them into something, it's typically difficult. And there's a reason why Nehemiah is able to confidently say something like this and and able to move through the things that he's working on. That's because the object of his worship is so much greater than the obstacles that he faces. The object of Nehemiah's worship, the Lord, is clearer and more beautiful than his challenges are daunting. He's got this unbelievable focus on the Lord that's not ever interrupted by the presence of these obstacles. He's really quick to pray. In Nehemiah 1, verses 5 to 11, he's having this conversation with the king. And right in the middle of it, there's a little line that as he's having the conversation, he prays to the Lord. In Nehemiah 2, 4, I'm sorry, in Nehemiah 5 to 11, he starts with prayer. In 2, 4, he prays in the middle of that conversation with the king. And in Nehemiah 4, verses 4 and 5, he gets done being ridiculed by Sambalat and Tobiah. And he actually stops. The first thing he does is stops and he prays. He's very committed to trusting the Lord. Nehemiah 2.20 says, The God of heaven will make us prosper. 4.14 says, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Nehemiah 4 verse 20, Nehemiah encourages the Israelite people by saying, Our God will fight for us. He's steadfast in his calling. He says, I'm doing a great work. This is something that the Lord wants Done, And he remains steadfast in that. He says, I'm not coming down off the wall. It's probably been a number of years since you've experienced this, but can you remember ever walking uh, in a room with a strobe light that's on? I had a group of friends, uh, and one of our friends had this large uh, finished basement, and, but there weren't really any windows in it, so you could make it pitch black in there. And so there would be time, and they had a strobe light. So there would be times where we would get the room totally black, and we would turn the strobe light on like the highest pulse rate. So it's like you're seeing like every third frame of life as it happens. And I don't know why, because we were young and dumb, we would have races across the room. We wouldn't move any of the furniture. It was just how quick could you get from one side of the room to the other and back? And we would time each other. And we learned in the midst of this that the key was to choose a fixed point in the room and just keep moving toward it. Because as soon as you started to look around, you became kind of dizzy and nauseous and everything's kind of flashing in front of you anyway. But if you chose a fixed point, you could move toward it with more confidence. Nehemiah has a fixed point here. Despite all the challenges and all the obstacles, he doesn't ever look around. He looks at his fixed point. Our God is great and awesome. He will fight for us. There's a fixed point. We have a team in Western Asia. If you're uh, new with us here, we sent a team of uh, eight individuals and their children over to Western Asia in order to uh, share the gospel and to plant a church there. And about a year ago, they 
the country that they're in experienced uh, a lot of political unrest. And our team was already in the midst of just the normal challenges of getting adjusted and the typical tensions that arise from working in a team and that being compounded by being in a foreign nation, far from home, trying to help children adjust. And when the situation got really tense over there uh, one particular weekend, I began getting a number of text messages and emails asking whether or not our team was going to come home. And I was a little bit hesitant to respond individually to people because I didn't want to speak for the team, but also because there was a chunk of my heart that said, I kind of hope they do. It seems dangerous there. And when things got completely calmed down, one of our team members sent uh, an email in a newsletter out. And I just want to read you one of the things that he said. He said this, Last weekend's events produced sleepless nights for most of our team. As we, awake, as we were awakened by the sounds of combat and a sense of uncertainty. Thankfully, we never felt that our physical safety was in immediate danger. And although we are uncertain what the political situation will look like in the coming months, we have endured this latest event with a renewed certainty in our calling and purpose here. He went on to say, My heart is even more broken now for the people of Western Asia, and I feel more of an urgency to proclaim the gospel here right now than I ever have. Our Western Asia team, with plenty of reasons to come home, said, we've been called here. We're doing a great work, and we will not come down. There's an author named Jared Wilson who, uh, in a book, writes this. He says, one thing we must remember is the difficulty doesn't indicate a lack of calling. The idea that God's calling is sure only when ministry is comfortable, prosperous, and happy isn't a scriptural one. So don't confuse a difficult season in your ministry with a lack of calling to a particular place or to ministry altogether. It could be that God has called you precisely to and for this difficulty. This text here, this individual, Nehemiah, isn't primarily about leadership. It's about what it looks like for people of God to be committed to the calling of God despite obstacles to the work of God. But I also don't want us to ever confuse uh, an, an individual within Scripture for the bigger picture of Scripture. We've talked repeatedly that we should be looking throughout the Old Testament for, for Christ in the midst of that. And one thing the book of Nehemiah makes incredibly clear is that God is the one acting. In fact, when the wall is finished being rebuilt, Nehemiah 6.16 says this, And when all our enemies had heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. God preserved this remnant of his people and brought them back to the land that he promised them. He made a way for the temple to be rebuilt. He made prophets that went and encouraged them in the midst of it. He brought Ezra back and the Levites to reinstitute institute his word and his worship. He stirs in Nehemiah. He's the object of Nehemiah's focus and worship. He makes a way through these challenges for the wall to be rebuilt. And Nehemiah knew it. And the Israelites knew it. And so they persevered in their work. And eventually the watching world knows it as well. I want to end with this. Can you think of a New Testament individual who was certain in their calling? who faced opposition to their task, who had leaders against him, who was ridiculed, physically oppressed, and often had conspiracies built to stop the very work that he came to do, who from among his own people had to work against their resistance to him and his purpose, 
who dealt with the fatigue and disbelief of his followers, who often came face to face with the sin of his own people? I hope you can. His name is Jesus Christ. We can rest and rejoice in the fact that at the peak of his challenge, at the height of the difficulty in his calling here to earth, he hung on the cross, and when jeered at to come down inside of his head, I think he probably thought to himself, I cannot come down because I am doing a great work. We can rest and rejoice in the fact that Jesus understood the same thing that Nehemiah did, and that's that the ease or the difficulty of a task is never to be confused with God's calling to it. And so he stayed on that cross. And salvation is secure because of it. Jesus did more than just build walls. In fact, what he did was tear down a wall that separates humanity from the Lord. Elizabeth Elliot stayed in Ecuador. Our Western Asia team stayed in the country. Nehemiah was not daunted, and the wall was rebuilt in 52 days. Jesus was not deterred, and salvation was achieved for all humanity for all of eternity. When the people of God are committed to the calling of God, then with the help of God, they're able to overcome obstacles to the work of God. That is the beauty of the book of Nehemiah. Not only does it show us this incredible commitment, not only does it uh, help us see what it is to be called to something in our own lives, it gives us this incredible foreshadowing of the type of perseverance that Jesus would have in the face of his own obstacles to completing what the Lord sent him to do. We're going to end by by singing uh, a bit of Jesus paid it all again this morning. And my my encouragement for you as we go today is to try to figure out kind of where you are in the midst of this. The first thing might be that you say, I certainly don't know what it would be like to have a calling from God because I don't know that I've ever entered into a relationship with God. And if that's the case, I want to invite you, as always, to find one of our staff members and talk about what it means to place your faith in Christ and have your sin forgiven, to step into a relationship with the Lord. For others here, it might be that you've not ever really addressed a calling in your life. And like I said, I'm praying that the Lord would stir within you that thing, that area of brokenness in our world that you look at and you say, I cannot stand that thing any longer. And that then you would submit yourself to allowing the Spirit to work through you and to use you in order to bring a kingdom reality to that. You might be in a place where you're certain of what the Lord has called you to. That doesn't have to be going overseas and doing some missionary work. It doesn't have to be something that many would call like overtly spiritual even. There's as much work from the Lord being done in places of business and commerce. There's as much work of the Lord being done by believers in secular places as there are by believers who commit themselves to specific gospel ministry. And you might feel certain of your calling to a place, and it might become difficult, and there might be obstacles, and my prayer for you is that the object of your worship would be greater than the presence of your obstacles, that you would fix your eyes on a set point, the Lord and his goodness, and that you would keep walking forward in reliance upon the Spirit. I'm going to pray for us. You can stand up. Let's sing together as we go.